0: All right. Well, as I said, I would like to. I'd like to really focus on what Scripture says about God's glory, and to do it in a way that, in a sense, follows Scripture's own story. So I mean, think of it as as the biblical story of God's glory. And in doing so, uh, I really want to. Uh, to do so, I hope in a way that uh, that puts Christ in, in the center. That if we want to understand God's glory, we understand that in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are obviously a lot of wonderful, beautiful ways in which Scripture speaks about Christ and and His glory. But I think one of the most profound things that Scripture says, uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says that Christ is the brightness of His Father's glory or the radiance of His Father's glory. The Father is all glorious, but if you want to know, to experience, to see the glory of the Father, it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his Son. You might think of in uh, the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, where Jesus made a a well-known statement, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a nice text for Christ alone. But you may remember what happened just after that. Um, you know, they, they, his, he's talking to his disciples there, and they say, well, you know, Jesus, just show us the Father, and, that, and, and that'll be good enough for us. You're great, but just show us the Father, and that's, that, that's good. And Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. It's not wrong, in a sense, to have that desire to see the Father, to know the Father, But you don't do it except through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in knowing the Son, you know the Father. In seeing the Son's glory, you you know the Father's glory. And the Scriptures also talk about the Holy Spirit as the one who has a special role in making Christ's glory known to you. And so this is Trinitarian. The Father is glorious the sun is the brightness of his Father's glory and the Spirit makes that glory manifest to you. The Spirit dwells in us so that we might come to, in some way, participate and share in that glory. As we begin looking at scriptures here, you might think of it in this way because I, I, I want you to, I not only want to tell the story of God's glory and, and glorify him in doing so, but I do want you to understand why God's glory alone is good news for you. It's part of the gospel message. And it's going to, it's, as I hope you'll see, that's like part of the tension, the drama of the scriptures. Can God's glory actually be good news for his people? And the final answer is yes. But it's not clear along the way how that's actually going to be true. All right. Christ wishes to be glorified alone, but he doesn't want to be lonely. Christ alone deserves the glory, but he wants to be glorified in a company of his people. And that is at the center of the reason why Christ's glory is good news for you, because he wants to be glorified with a people. All right, I think the, the... The best place to begin in thinking about God's glory in the scriptures is to go back to the time when Israel was coming out of Egypt. If you're familiar with the story, even in its basic outline, you'll know that shortly after Israel left Egypt, there appeared over them this pillar of cloud and fire. And we're told that God's glory was made manifest. This is where we first... Start hearing about God's glory. I mean, you can say that God has revealed himself in glorious ways before that, but here's where we be actually begin hearing about God's glory. In the book of Genesis, God is never called glorious. The, the word never even appears in the book of Genesis. Right? Here is where we start hearing about the glory of God. Now, this, this cloud is it's a really fascinating thing, and it's, it's actually a really important part of the, old, the progress of the Old Testament history. Now, this the, we're told that the cloud at night looked like fire. It was like a giant fireball in the sky. It was so bright that it, it illuminated the way for them so they could travel at night if, they, if, if God wished them to. Israel could go through the wilderness. Now, you think about this. You could be sure that there were no streetlights through that barren desert, Right, it would not have been easy for them to travel through, but this, this, this cloud was so bright that it just it illuminated the way for them. It was a massive, bright cloud. At times, scripture also describes this cloud as something like a storm cloud. Right, now, There are all sorts of different kinds of clouds, and I don't know what, they're, what, what the different names of those different kinds of clouds are. But I think when you think about this cloud, don't think of like one of those beautiful puffy white clouds on a nice summer day. Think of it more like a storm cloud that is coming, that, that grabs your attention and makes you think, maybe I should find shelter. Right? In, uh, when Israel came to Mount Sinai uh, shortly after leaving Egypt, uh, it says that the cloud covered Mount Sinai as a dense cloud Like smoke from a furnace. And thunder and lightning was coming out from this cloud. Now, it may not have always looked quite that imposing, but at least at times, it was, it, it was something that got, had to have gotten Israel's attention. God revealed himself in some ways in this cloud. Ordinarily, what this cloud did is it served as a kind of a travel guide for them. They had no maps. They had no GPS. They had absolutely no clue where they were going. But the cloud would lead them. Where, where the cloud would stop, they would stop. Sometimes it would stop for a day. Sometimes it would stop for a year. When it got going, they got going. One time, we know that the cloud actually moved in back of them to serve as a kind of fortress for them. This is um, when they got to the, the sea and the Egyptian armies chasing them. The, the, the cloud moved in back of them. And kept the Egyptian army from chasing them uh, that night while the Red Sea parted. So this is this is an essential part of Israel's experience in the wilderness, as we read in in Exodus and Numbers. Now, the thing that made this cr- cr- this cloud so glorious ultimately was not that it was, you know, it looked imposing, uh, but that. It was the dwelling place of God. All right, that's how it is described in various parts of the scriptures. Now, for any young people that, that are, are, are here, it's important that you recognize that, in some sense, God has no dwelling place. Because to have a dwelling place presumes that you have a body, that you have a physical location. We can only be in one place at a time because we're physical bodily creatures. When I'm here with you in Omaha, it means I'm not home in California. Right? We we can only be in one place at a time. God is not like that. God has no body. He is not limited by space as we are. Now, we, in a sense we believe that by faith because we can't really understand that. It doesn't, we have no experience of that. we can't really imagine what it's like to have no location. God has no location. He is everywhere present. However, we do know from Scripture that God makes Himself specially present in certain t- places at certain times. He reveals himself in special ways. He makes his blessing felt in certain ways, in certain places, or makes sometimes he makes. His, his judgment felt in certain places in, in special ways. And one of those places in which God made his presence felt, made his presence manifest in special ways, was in this cloud. There are a couple of places you might look. I, I'm, I'm not going to uh, turn there and, and read it for you now, but you might look sometime at uh, Psalms 97 and 99. This is, these are these are fascinating psalms that are um, um, talk about the glory of God. And they're they're describing, at least in part, the cloud, God's revelation in this cloud. And it describes it as a place of God's dwelling. It's a place where God's throne is. So this God wanted Israel to understand that this cloud is the place where God has his throne. And if we put all the pieces together, we understand that this cloud was actually a kind of a replica of, of God's throne in heaven. If you think about, of all the places where God is specially present, it is in heaven. And the cloud was a kind of a replica of his heavenly court, his heavenly throne. So Israel was to understand that God was, he was dwelling there. He was enthroned there. The cloud is also described sometimes as a chariot. It's like God's driving his chariot in the sky above them. When Moses built the tabernacle and then Solomon, the, 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 the temple later, I'll, I'll, I'll get to this in just a moment, that was, in a way, a replica of the cloud. It's like that temple is sort of God's throne room here, there on, on earth. That's why that was the special place of God's glory, too. So all of these things fit together, and I mean, it's, it's a very... I'm trying to think of a more sophisticated word than awesome, but it really is an awesome thing to think. You know, God wanted Israel to, to see, to understand that cloud as His chariot, His throne moving above them through the sky. You can understand why it was, um, why it was so important, and why it was, uh, in many ways, such a blessing to have that cloud uh, hovering over them. Another thing, uh, before I I get to a little bit more of the story of uh, of what happens with this cloud, one other thing to note about this cloud that is important to note is that the Old Testament at a number of places associates that cloud with the Holy Spirit. The cloud is kind of complicated. There's a lot going on. But a number of places say that it was the Holy Spirit who was leading Israel through the wilderness. That that Cloud, the dwelling place of God, was the Holy Spirit making himself visible to the people. This is Trinitarian. It is God's throne, it is the Holy Spirit uh, who is making this glory visible for his people of old. So now with that with that background, we can Get to what I would want you to think about as really the primary question. Right? As God reveals his, his glory in that cloud, bringing Israel through the wilderness, and then subsequently being with them, I'll, I'll, I'll get there in a moment, was that actually good news for the people of Israel? Was that a blessing for Israel to have that cloud? In some ways, it seems that the answer is clearly yes. In some ways, it brought them blessing. It brought them joy. But in other respects, in other very important respects, respects, that cloud brought judgment. That cloud brought terror to Israel. And you can read certain texts where it seems like that cloud is actually bad news for Israel. And I think this is one of of the reasons why the Bible couldn't stop with the Old Testament. Why we needed a New Testament to finish the story. Because there's a tension that's never resolved throughout the course of the Old Testament. So let me talk about this a little bit now in the Old Testament, and then move to the New, as we see its resolution. As Israel arrived at Sinai, they've come out of Egypt, they've pass through the sea, they come to Mount Sinai where God's going to give his law to them. And we read in Exodus 19 especially that this cloud, this cloud is near, this cloud is hovering over and the cloud settles on Mount Sinai in this this, uh, this awesome, terrifying way. In a way, you say, well what a great blessing to have God so near to them, to have God enter into a covenant with them to make them, what Exodus 19 says, to make Israel, his treasured possession. And yet, at the same time, do you remember they had to rope off the mountain? No one could come near that mountain. If anyone, if any animal touches that mountain, they immediately are struck down dead. <laughs> there is God. Seems to be what a great blessing. And yet, it's almost as if simultaneously, don't come close, S- stay away. Don't come too near to this majestic, awesome presence of God. Only Moses and a few others were permitted to go up on Mount Sinai to actually meet with God in a more intimate way. It's almost as if God says, I'm present with you, but you're excluded from too close of contact with me. It's a very interesting thing we find. And that same theme continues. So a little while later then, we read uh, at the end of Exodus that Moses uh, supervises the construction of the tabernacle. So this was to be this this place of worship, the place of sacrifice, uh, the place where God was specially present on the ground here on earth. And we get to the end of, uh, of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 40, it says that the cloud covered the tent of meeting... And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, I mean, the cloud, at least I, I don't know exactly what this looked like, but the cloud comes and it actually settles in the tabernacle. And you think, wow. Maybe we're not excluded anymore. Now we can get close to God. But immediately, in Exodus 40, it says that... Um, even Moses couldn't come into the tabernacle. God fills the tabernacle, but no one is permitted inside. All right, so it's, you get this sort of dual message. God drawing near to his people, but excluding them from getting too close. Shortly thereafter, if you continue reading from Exodus 40 into Leviticus... Um, and it, it really, it, it's the same story. The story just continues. So there's, there's, a, there's a book, there's a break of the book, but it's, it's the same story continues. Exodus, the end of Exodus, you get the tabernacle constructed. And then immediately in Leviticus, you get the instructions about, the, the, about uh, the, the sacrifices that were to be offered there. And we read in Leviticus 9 about how the priests were ordained. So Aaron and his sons set apart to minister in that tabernacle, and it says in Leviticus 9, um, after this ordination ceremony, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and they shouted for joy. And if you think, okay, now, right, now this is good news. Now God is with us and we're near him. The glory of God is, is good news for us. So then you keep reading and get to Leviticus 10. Do you remember what happens? beginning of Leviticus 10, you know, Aaron had four sons that were ordained to the priesthood with him. And two of them, Nadab and Abihu, they, they do something they're not supposed to do. They, they, they get creative. Hey, we've got a good idea of what we can do here in this tabernacle. And God strikes them down. So it's almost as if you can still hear the echoes of the people shouting for joy. And then two of the five people ordained to the priesthood are struck down dead. They sin in the presence of the Lord and God's holiness drives them out. And you wonder, wow, we're a sinful people in the presence of a holy God. Maybe this isn't such good news that God in his glory has drawn so close to his people. And it's a fascinating phenomenon because... Israel must have considered it a great privilege to have God so near to them. And when God actually threatened, going back into Exodus, when, when they built the golden calf at Mount Sinai, and God threatened to send them on their way, you know, go on your way, Israel, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to send my cloud with you. And they said, no, we can't go if you don't go with us. So they wanted the cloud. They wanted God's presence. And yet, at the same time, When God drew near with his cloud, their sin was exposed. If you get close to a holy, glorious God, it reveals who you are in comparison. And all of a sudden, it doesn't seem like such a good bargain to be close and in the presence of that kind of God. I'm not going to delay too much more in the Old Testament, but if if you fast forward ahead, when Israel comes into the promised land... They come in under Joshua, and we stop hearing about the cloud. It, it, it appears that the cloud, uh, once it gets them to the promised land, takes them through the wilderness, the, the cloud seems to disappear for, 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 for a time. Uh, but we find that the cloud makes a reappearance when Solomon builds the temple. So the temple is basically a permanent place for the tabernacle that had been mobile uh, up to that point. The tabernacle was just, it was a place that could move along. It had no permanent structure. So Solomon builds the temple. And if you read in 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles about the establishment of that temple, things sound an awful lot like they did at the end of Exodus and beginning of Leviticus when we read about the tabernacle being built in the wilderness. So uh, it tells us that Solomon builds the temple... Uh, and the Ark of the Covenant is brought in, and it says, this is from uh, 1 Kings, it says the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. So all of a sudden, there's the cloud's back. The temple is built, the cloud returns, and it says that the cloud uh, filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So just like in Exodus 40, The cloud comes into the temple and everyone else has to get out. God's coming near and yet he's excluding the people from his intimate presence. And yet at the same time, they offer some sacrifices. Solomon blesses the people and it says that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. Good news, isn't it? God is coming and he's not just being with them in a portable tabernacle, but now there's a permanent address. It seems as though, okay, now God is here. Now we know where to find God's glory. Now we know where to find blessing. Or so it seems. How permanent actually was it? The problem was, the people were still sinful. And if you just read the stories that come after, you know, this is... These seem like good... These are good days in Israel. Early in Solomon's reign, the temple constructed... No wars for Israel, they were at peace. But boy, you read the rest of First and Second Kings, and it just what a sad, sad story of rebellion against God, of wickedness, of idolatry. And God had said long before, he'd said in, in the law of Moses, that if they rebel against him, he's gonna send them into exile. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, it actually said, you are going to disobey and I am going to send you into exile. It's going to happen. And it does happen. God is long-suffering for many years, but he sends them into exile away from Jerusalem. And one one of the fascinating things we find in Scripture in the events surrounding that is in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet who lived at the time when Israel was being brought into exile. It happened in some stages. Ezekiel was actually an early exile. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you may know, prophesied at the same time. Jeremiah remained in the land and Ezekiel had already been brought into exile with an early group of people brought to Babylon. And in this vision, that, one of the visions that Ezekiel saw, uh, in, this, it extends from Ezekiel 8 to 9 to 10 he actually sees the glory of God getting up and leaving the temple. First in Ezekiel 8, he sees the glory of the God of Israel in the temple court. That's where it ought to be. And he sees in Ezekiel 9, the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. God's glory is actually getting up from where it was. And it starts moving out to the uh, to the exit, and ex- Ezekiel ten says the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple, stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. Ezekiel sees that cloud get up and leave the temple. It wasn't the permanent location of God's glory. This was not the final answer to Israel's needs. God's glory, well, you might say that as a sinful people, they weren't meant to be in the presence of a glorious God. And the Old Testament doesn't resolve that. It gives plenty of reason to have hope for the future, but it doesn't actually tell us the story of how that problem gets resolved. And so now I want to move to the New Testament, where we find the story brought to its completion. You see, what we can say is that in the Old Testament, the story of God's glory is as much bad news for God's people as it is good news. The New Testament tells us about how the story of God's glory becomes nothing but good news for you who are the people of God, for you who looked to Christ, because what God's people needed was not a tabernacle. What they needed was not an earthly building where God's glory could settle. What they needed was a Messiah. What they needed was a great king. What they needed was a savior who could somehow make a sinful people Compatible with the glory of God. Somehow make a sinful people, a people who could dwell in the presence of a holy and majestic God. Now, when we come to the story of Christ as the New Testament opens in the Gospels, it reveals the glory of God in Christ for us. But here's what I want you to think about especially. And the Gospels tell us about how the glory of God in Christ is revealed in Christ's humiliation. The glory of God revealed in a suffering, despised, ridiculed, mocked, beaten, crucified Savior. It is not what Israel thought the answer to their problem was. God's glory was pretty awesome in the Old Testament. Can you imagine having that storm cloud above you as you're wandering through the wilderness? And yet, how different, how profoundly different, but how profoundly beautiful we find the revelation of Christ's glory. Think about how these things, how these things fit together. I mean... Here is the one who is the brightness of his Father's glory. Do you remember how Isaiah 52, 53, how it it talks about this coming Messiah? He will have no beauty that we would be attracted to him. His form will be disfigured. (laughs) He's going to... Don't expect a handsome Messiah. Don't expect a a statue of a Greek God that you're going to admire That's not, he is going to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Romans 8 verse 3 says. And it's offensive, it's appalling, to think that God would reveal his glory in a suffering, humiliated Savior. Yet as Martin Luther put it, it is not sufficient for anyone, and it does him no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty unless he recognizes him in the humility and shame of the cross. All right. You want to go directly to God's glory? Well, think about, think about the experience of people who experienced the glory of God directly, <laughs> who experienced the cloud as sinful beings. It's only in the humility and shame of the cross that we can now experience God's glory as good news. So let me... Try to turn to Christ's work, Christ's ministry. And just to sort of point out how uh, how it develops. I mean, one of the the first one of the first things that we see in the book of Luke in Luke chapter two is this great story uh, that we love uh, to tell uh, about how the angels the angels appeared at night. saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. But to whom did they appear? They appeared to a band of shepherds. Shepherds were not the elite of that day. Humble, lowly shepherds. They got to hear the angelic choirs sing the glory of God. And they told them that the Messiah had been born... And they sent them to go see the Messiah. And where was that wonderful, glorious Messiah to be found? In a barn. He was lying in a manger with, with the farm animals. Something weird going on here. The glory of God revealed in humility, maybe even shame. Remember what Jesus' first miracle was, at least the first that we read about in the Gospel of John. He turns water into wine. Do you remember how he does that? He does it behind the scenes. The only people who know what he does? Servants. They're the only ones who know about what he does. Later on, we read about perhaps the most glorious appearance of Christ in his earthly ministry the Transfiguration. But he only takes three disciples with him as he reveals himself, and it's only for a brief moment of time, and that the story, if you read the Gospel of Luke, the story of the transfiguration, it's sandwiched between two stories in which Jesus says, I have to suffer and die, and if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross and suffer with me. The glory of Christ revealed alongside a message of humiliation and suffering When I think of the resurrection of Lazarus, I mean, here's another one of the highlights. It actually tells us, John 11 um, tells us that it is for God's glory so that the the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is why Jesus raises Lazarus. It's for his glory and for the Father's glory. And yet, where does it get him? The, The rulers of that day plotted together to kill him in response to him raising Lazarus from the dead. And perhaps what is most striking about this theme of the revelation of Christ's glory and the theme of his humiliation and shame is what the Gospels say about the crucifixion. As Jesus comes to the end of his earthly life, you ever considered the way that the Gospels talk about how the cross was Christ's glorification. Especially it comes out in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 12, he says, and this is, John, in John 12, it's, you know, it's only a little over halfway to the Gospel of John, but we're, we're already at, at the cusp of the crucifixion by this point in the Gospel. And Jesus says in John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his crucifixion. His crucifixion will be his glorification, at least part of his glorification. Just after that quote, he says, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He sees his coming crucifixion as glorifying for himself and his father. Father, In the next chapter, John 13, the night that he was betrayed, he says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. In John 17, this is still the night he was betrayed. This is his his famous high priestly prayer. The last prayer that he prays with his disciples before he's handed over to crucifixion. And he prays... He's praised this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I have, brought glory on, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. He's finishing the work by going to the cross and it is glorifying his father. The work that he did at Calvary, it was the ultimate in humiliation. The Son of God hanging naked on a cross to be tortured. And that's that's what crucifixion was. It was an advanced, sophisticated method of torture. The ultimate in humiliation, in shame, in reproach. And yet, this was precisely what sinners needed for salvation. He suffered for us. He bore our curse. He bore our shame. He bore our reproach. He bore our misery. He bore our humiliation. And God was glorified through that. What a God. We knew that he was just. We knew he was powerful. We knew he was holy. But what mercy. What love, what compassion for us, God in Christ glorified through the cross, doing whatever it took to reconcile his people to himself, but of course that 's not the end of the story, not the end of the glory of Christ. Christ is glorified in his exaltation as god 's glory revealed in that hidden way in the cross. But Christ was raised up and exalted. And what wonderful things the New Testament says about his resurrection, his ascension. Acts 3 says that God glorified his servant Jesus in the resurrection. 1 Peter says God raised him from the dead and glorified him. Romans 6, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Philippians 3 says that Christ now has a body of glory. So... Christ, now exalted in in an open way, his glory made manifest in ways that it was not before. He ascended into heaven. And Revelation 5 speaks about how the angels surround the throne praising Christ. It says there that there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels Glorifying Christ. Now, 10,000 is a lot. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. 100 million angels now surround the throne of Christ and declare, holy, holy, holy. They declare power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That's going on right now. That same Lord who experienced the ultimate in humiliation in the cross. He's now exalted, and we know that He is going to return. And it's not going to be like His first coming, in which His glory was veiled, in which His glory was cloaked in humility. You know, Matthew 24 says that He is going to return in a cloud. I'm sure you've read that. Maybe you didn't really think about that. Why do you think Christ is going to return in a cloud? I suggest it's because it's a way to signal that that Old Testament story of the cloud that was with Israel it's coming to its conclusion that cloud is finally finding its resting place it wasn't in a tabernacle that moved through the wilderness it wasn't in a temple in Jerusalem that cloud is going to find its resting place in the new creation in the new Jerusalem and Christ is going to be seated there in all his glory. And you, the people of God who rest in Christ, are not in any way going to be excluded. You are not going to be driven out from that heavenly tabernacle. You will not be struck down for failing to serve God or worship him in the right way. You who trust in Christ will be fully, absolutely, 100% welcome and blessed. You will find your true meaning and true purpose of your life there, dwelling with your glorious Lord, joining the worship of a 100 million angels as we call upon our God and declare his praise. As I indicated at the end of my first lecture, the fact that God is, He is the all glorious one, He is the one to whom all glory belongs, that doesn't mean that you are therefore despised, that you therefore are worthless. You might think, well, there's certain certain logic to that. If all glory belongs to God, then we're nothing, we're worthless. But no, if you understand this story of God's glory, you come to understand that God wills to be glorified in Christ in large part through the redemption of a people who can see his glory, who can share the blessedness of that glory. And let me leave you with Three thoughts on that. Three brief thoughts. First, one of the great blessings you have if you belong to Christ, if you have put your faith in him, is that he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon you. He has poured out, it's the same Spirit revealed in that cloud of glory. None of you look as good as imposing as magnificent as that cloud. But the same Spirit who is revealed in that cloud, He dwells in you. He empowers you. He sanctifies you. He comforts you. He intercedes for you. That should be of great encouragement to you. It's part of why The glory of God is good news for you because you have the spirit of glory. This is what how 1 Peter 4 puts it. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Be encouraged by that. Secondly, this is on a more sober note, we are called to suffer here and now. We are called to follow the same pattern of our Lord. Christ suffered first and then entered into that great state of glory. Now, he was, he was still glorious. Even while he was suffering, we saw that. But he had to suffer first before entering that state of exaltation. And he calls us to, to, to the same. And none of our own sufferings look exactly identical. You suffer in ways different from me. Some of our brothers and sisters in this world are suffering for the name of Christ in ways that we can hardly even imagine. But all of us, every single one of us, is called to share in the sufferings of Christ now. But you see, we share in the sufferings of Christ so that we may also share in his glory. Christ suffered and then was glorified, and there's no way for us to share in that glory apart from also sharing in his sufferings now. Romans 8 says, if we are children, children of God, if we are children, then we are heirs, Heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. First Peter four puts it beautifully. Before I read from that, let me just let me let me say what he, is basically he's getting at. Your sufferings here and now are not random. They're not meaningless. In the midst of them, they sometimes seem that way. We don't we don't we don't know why. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how we're going to get through. First Peter four says we should rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Your suffering now is a participation in the sufferings of Christ. As his sufferings were not meaningless, so yours are not either. But finally, we will be glorified with him on the last day. This is the final point I just want to leave you with. This is our great hope. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If if in this life, if it's in this life that you have put your hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is our hope. It is for that glory that is to come. Colossians 3 says, Even now our lives are hidden with Christ in God, but when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And 1 Peter 5 says that when our chief shepherd appears, we will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That is our hope. You will be glorified And that doesn't take away from God's glory. Christ is glorified alone in that you are glorified. It almost seems like a contradiction. But remember that you are glorified as the great work of Christ glorifying himself. You have a share in the glory of God. The glory of God is good news for for all of us who have put our hope in Christ.